Warning. Today's story contains a few scenes of strong graphic violence, including sexual violence. It's definitely not for children. Escape Pod 139 January 3rd, 2008 Today's story, Acephalus Dreams, by Neil Asher Hello! I'm Steve Ely, and welcome to the first Escape Pod of 2008. I hope all of you had happy holidays. What we have today isn't an especially New Year's-ish story. I suppose I could say something like, it's about a man faced with new beginnings in his life, or something. But it would really be a stretch. Likewise, I can't say anything inspiring here about New Year's resolutions and all the stuff people are expected to talk about this time of year. I'm just not upbeat on long-term planning right now. I'm not against setting goals, per se. I've got several goals myself, but they're fairly short-term ones for the next couple of months. And, yes, Podcastle is one of them. My problem with longer goals, with whole-year goals, is that my observation has been that life changes too much. 2007 ended in a completely different place for me than I could have predicted when it began. I had new personal relationships, new career directions. Really, my family and escape pod were the only constants. Likewise for 2006. Except for Anna, Alex, and Escape Pod, everything else changed. So, that's all I'm going to promise myself for the whole of 2008. I'm going to be a good husband, I'm going to be a good father, and Escape Pod will keep going every week, all year long, the best I can make it. If I can keep those going, same as before, I'm good with whatever other changes happen. No resolutions needed. And it's only now, when I think about it this way, that I realize how much this podcast matters as a constant in my life. So, Exhibit A. Our story this week is Acephalous Dreams by Neil Asher. Mr. Asher lives in England. This piece is very typical of his work. Hard-edged, high-tech, and philosophical. It's set in the polity universe of his Ian Cormack series of novels, of which the next one, Line War, is due out this spring. This story first appeared in Adventure, Volume 1, in 2005. So don't try to run. There's nowhere to hide. It's story time. Acephalous Dreams by Neil Asher Having no head, or one reduced, indistinct, as certain insect larvae. Such things he considered as the pool spread to his foot and melded round the rubber sole of his boot. He would leave distinctive footprints. Devnon macro boots, 57 new Carth shillings a pair. They were only sold from one place, and there was not much of a turnover in them. Carth was somewhat off the tourist route, religious fanaticism not being much of a draw in such enlightened times. No resistance at all. Deus stepped back from the pool and walked slowly round the corpse, the grub, his right boot leaving a bloody ribbed footprint and the incomplete D.E.V. at each step. He was not a tall man, Deus, and his weightlifter's physique made him appear shorter. He was exceptionally physically strong, and this strength had been sufficient to drive the carbide-edged machete through the flesh, bone, and gristle of Anton Velston's neck. No resistance. The machete had not even slowed, and Deus had not even felt a tug. The head... Anton's head, had not tumbled away spouting blood as it would have in most hollow dramas. 
It had remained balanced on Anton's neck, displaced by only a fraction, unmoved by the hydraulic pressure of the blood that spurted out sideways until the head became fully detached when Anton, unstrung puppet fashion, collapsed to the floor in the shroud of his priestly robes. Deus smiled to himself when he reached a position giving him clear view of the severed neck. There was always plenty of blood flowing in the holodramas, but they did not often show this sort of thing. In the pool of blood, there was a second immiscable pool of well-chewed Carthian prawns, special fried rice, that piquant sauce they made at the Lotus Garden, and bile. Sniffing and wrinkling his nose, Deus was also made aware that Anton had emptied his bowels in the last moments. "'Are you with your god now, Anton?' Deus asked. The bowl of night over the roof port made his voice sound flat and meaningless as it drank his words. Deus surveyed the ranked grav cars for any sign of movement, any sign that he had been observed, but there seemed to be none of either. It was late, and the faithful were always early to bed and early to rise. Witnesses were not a requirement, though, and few people got away with murder. He dropped the machete onto the corpse, turned, stooped, and picked up Anton's head. It was surprisingly heavy. Holding it by the dark blood-soaked hair, Deus studied Anton's face. Nothing there. In death, terror had fled, and all that remained was the expression etched there by Anton's vicious and debauched life. Deus dropped the head into the bag he had stolen from a ten-pin bowling alley, perfect for the task, waterproof too. Then he squatted down by the corpse. All done, but for one last sign, he said. Reaching out, he dipped his finger in blood and drew on the ground a figure eight turned on its side. It was the sign for infinity, but meant so much else to him. He then took up the bag and headed for his own grav car, quickly stepped inside, and with the turbines at their quietest and slowest, lifted the car from the roof. Eight hours maximum. The corpse was sure to be discovered in the next two hours. Fingerprints and DNA would be identified at the scene within the following hour, and access to runcible transport denied directly after. He reckoned the search would first be centered at the Runcible facility. They would expect him to try to get off-planet, to one of the Line worlds, expected it of any murderer. He smiled to himself as he directed his cleverly stolen Ford Nevada grav car out of the city and away from the facility, to a glow on the horizon that was not where the sun rose. It was a place where godless Carthians came with mylar glide wings to have fun in the thermals above the volcano. This activity was frowned on by the theocracy, and attempts had been made to ban the sport, but the theocracy only had power over those who voluntarily subjugated themselves to it. Polity law ruled on Karth, and the monitors of Earth Central were never far away. With the Ford set on hover, Deus opened the door and dropped the bowling bag and its grisly contents into the caldera. As a necessity, he was very high up and only able to discern a pinprick, near subliminal in its brevity, as the head struck the lava and incinerated. "'Resurrect the fucker now,' said Deus, and wondered if he might be going insane. Perhaps a plea of insanity. No, he felt completely and utterly sane, as always. When they finally caught him, he would be tried with all fairness and sympathy. His memories would be read by an A.I., his life rolled out, dissected, and completely understood by a mind quite capable of such. What made him what he was would be discovered, recorded, and perhaps be the subject of lengthy study. He would be gone by the time that study reached any conclusions, 
taken to a disintegrator, and in less than a second converted into a pool of organic sludge and flushed into the Carthian Ocean for the delectation of its plankton. There was a kind of poetry to such an ending. Deus didn't like poetry. He closed the door of the Ford, his eyes watering from the sulfur fumes, then turned the vehicle back towards the city. Do you want to live? The Golem 27 that had entered his cell was only identifiable as an android by her deliberately flawed perfection. The artificial skin and flesh of her right arm were transparent, and through it Deus could see her gleaming ceramel bones, the cybermotors at her joints, and the tangles of optic cables. Otherwise, she was completely beautiful, a blonde-haired teenager with wide amber eyes and a pertly nubile body clothed in a short silk toga. Deus remained on his bunk and waited for her to continue. Very well, she said, and turned to go. Deus sat up. Wait, wait a minute. Of course I want to live. She turned. Then please be civil enough to reply when I ask a question. Okay, okay. Deus waved her to a seat. She sat and smiled briefly at him before continuing. Your memcording has been analyzed, and those memories you attempted to have concealed have been revealed and intensively studied. We even know why you drew the sign for infinity beside his body. Deus stared at her. He had not expected this. She continued. Yet, despite the years of abuse you suffered at the hands of Anton Velston while at the Theocratic College, you were still considered sane and culpable, simply because you could have later reported him and had him sent for readjustment. I preferred how I readjusted him. Apparently. And so nothing can stop me from going to the disintegrator, said Deus. The intervention of the A.I. Geronimid can. Deus shivered at the mention of the name. Geronimid was the Sector A.I. What the hell interest would it have in a minor criminal like himself? Why would Geronimid want to get involved? A.I. Geronimid has need of a subject for a scientific trial. This trial may kill you, in which case it would be considered completion of sentence. Should you survive, all charges against you will be dropped. And the nature of this trial? Cephalic implantation of Saurian Node. Okay, I agree, though I have no idea what Saurian Node is. The golem stood, and as she did so, the door slid open. Deus glanced up at the security eye in the corner of the cell and stood also. She nodded to the door, and he followed her out. In the corridor, a couple of policemen glared at him with ill-concealed annoyance, but showed no reaction beyond that. Outside the station, she led him to a sleek grav car, styled after one of the 22nd century electric cars. He thought, briefly, about escape, but knew he stood no chance. His companion might look like a teenage girl, but he knew she was strong enough to rip him in half. Once they were seated in the grav car, it took off without her touching the controls, and sped away at a speed well above the limit. He wondered if some minuscule part of Geronimid was controlling it. You didn't tell me. What's a Saurian node? If we knew that with any certainty, we would not be carrying out this trial, replied the golem. You know it's some sort of implant. We do, but only because it was found in the body of a Saurian. A Saurian has been found? Oh, yes, underneath the ruins on Wilder. The body is about a hundred thousand years old. The node was attached to its hindbrain. Deus turned that over in his mind. The Saurians were one of the three dead races, the Jane and the Atheter being the other two. 
They supposedly died out about a hundred thousand years before the human race had set out for the stars. All that remained of their civilizations was a few ruins of coralline buildings and the descendants of those plants and creatures to survive from their biotechnology. It was one of the last of them, then, he said. Yes. He considered for a moment before going on. Surely Geronimid should have been able to work out what this node is. Perhaps he has. Who can tell? Deus noted that the grav car was well above the traffic lanes and still rising. He heard the door seals locked down and wondered where the hell they were going. When he turned to the golem to ask her, he saw that she had called up something on the screen. Here was a creature much like a praying mantis, only without the long, winged abdomen. From the back of its thorax extended a ribbed tail that branched into three. At the branch point was a pronounced thickening from which grew a second pair of insectile legs. It was about a meter long. We think the hindbrain had something to do with reproduction, said the golem. That's a saurian? asked Deus. It is. We are reasonably sure that their society was much like that of the social insects of Earth. Wasps, ants, hornets, and the like. They had hive minds just the same? This is what we suppose. Deus smiled to himself. It had come as one shock in many when arrogant humanity had discovered it wasn't the only sentient race on Earth. It was just the loudest and most destructive. Dolphins and whales had always been candidates because of their aesthetic appeal and stories of rescued swimmers. Research in that area had soon cleared things up. Dolphins couldn't tell the difference between a human swimmer and a sick fellow, and were substantially more stupid than the animals humans had been turning into pork on a regular basis. Whales had the intelligence of the average cow. When a hornet built its nest in a VR suit and lodged its protests on the internet, it had taken a long time for anyone to believe. They were stinging things, creepy crawlies. How could they possibly be intelligent? At 10,000 years of age, the youngest hive mind showed them. People believed. So a hive mind got into space long before we did. I find that gratifying to hear, said Deus. The golem gazed at him speculatively. Your misanthropy is well understood. You do realize that if you'd had it corrected, you would not be in the situation you are now. I like my dislike of humanity. It kept me sane. Very amusing, said the golem, turning back to the screen. The picture she now called up was of a small ovoid with complex modeling on its surface. Deus noted it, then gazed through the windows and saw the sky becoming dark blue and stars beginning to show. The planet had now receded. He pushed his face to the window to try and get a look down at it and saw only a shuttle glinting like a discarded needle far below him. This is the node. We know that it contains picotech and likely biofactored connections to its host's brain. We first thought it some kind of augmentation. Well, that seems the most likely, said Deus, turning back. Yes, but this node is three centimeters long, two wide, and has a density twice that of lead. So? The golem looked at him. Every cubic nanometer of it is packed with picotech. Under scan, we have so far managed to identify two billion picomachines with the ability to self-replicate. They also all cross-reference. There is a complexity here that is beyond even Geronimid's ability. There was a sound, slightly like a groan, from within the workings of the grav car. Deus felt the artificial gravity come on, and when he gazed out the windows, now saw nothing but starlit space. 
As he turned to fire another question at the golem, his seat slapped him lightly on his back, and the grav car surged towards a distant speck. He decided to be annoyed. Am I supposed to be impressed by all this? No, said the golem. You are just supposed to be thankful that you are still alive. Deus grimaced and peered ahead at the speck as it drew closer. When can I speak to Geronimid? The golem looked at him. Ah, he said. You never told me your name. It is my conceit to name this part of myself Hera, said a very small part of the A.I. Geronimid. The speck resolved into a flat disk of a ship, the size of which did not become evident until they drew very close. What Deus had first taken to be panoramic windows set in the side of the vessel soon resolved into bay doors the size of city blocks. The ship had to be at least two kilometers in diameter. This is where you are, said Deus. Yes, the central mind is here, replied Hera. The bay doors drew aside, and the grav car sped in, then landed on a wide expanse of gridded bay floor. The moment the doors closed behind, there came a boom of wind as atmosphere was restored in the bay. The car's seals automatically disengaged, and Geronimid's golem opened her door. Deus quickly opened his door and followed. Is the node here? he asked as they approached a drop shaft. It is, as are the remains of the Saurian and much of their recovered technology. They stepped into the irised gravity field, and it dropped them down into the ship. Ten floors down, they stepped out into a wide chamber filled with old-style museum display cases. Hera led him past an aquarium containing corals and pastel shades of every color, past a tank containing plants that bore translucent fruit like lumps of amber, a case containing pieces of coral with something like circuitry etched or grown on their inner faces. She brought him finally to the tank containing the remains of the Saurian, whole and almost lifelike. It wasn't in this condition, surely he said. No, only four percent of it was recoverable. What about DNA? Scraps only. Not enough to build up a large enough template. AIs did it with dinosaurs. In that case, there was more material to work with. What is in this case is all we have of the Saurians. Here, this is what we have come to see. She led him past the Saurian to a small bell jar over a jade pedestal. Underneath the jar lay the node, in appearance a simple pebble. Deus stepped closer. As he did so, he felt a slight displacement, a sense of dislocation, and from this he knew the ship was on the move. Where are we going? A living world without sentient life. You must be isolated while the node does whatever it does. What? Deus turned to her to protest. Her hand moved so fast he hardly registered it moving. Fingertips brushed his neck, and from that point he felt his body turning to lead. Don't worry, I'll be with you said Hera, as he slipped into darkness. Something huge was poised on the edge of his being, not inimical, but dangerous and vast, and ready to drown him out of existence. Anton was a small and insignificant thing on the ground at his feet, even though armies were marching out of his severed neck. Deus decided to laugh and leap into the sky, and this being his wish, he did so, for he knew this was a dream. When he woke, though, that huge something was still there. "'How do you feel?' asked Hera. Deus opened his eyes and stared at the domed ceiling. He turned his head aside and saw the golem sitting in a form chair beside the sofa he lay upon. They were in a comfortably furnished house of some kind. Greenish light filtered in through the wide windows. "'Where are we?' he asked. "'The world only has a number.' 
I thought you said this was uninhabited, said Deus, sitting up and studying their surroundings. Geronimid prepared this place for you some time ago, said Hera. For me? Well, for the next person under a death sentence when it decided to implant the node. I was lucky that time occurred when it did. Yes, five seconds later, and someone else would have been chosen. Deus stood and stretched his neck. It's in me, then? Yes, you will not know it is there until the Picotech starts to work. And when will that be? We do not know. It is not working at the moment, though. How can you be sure of that? I am taking readings from numerous detectors implanted in your body. I didn't give permission for that, said Deus. Hera shrugged. To put it in a suitable parlance, she said, tough. Deus stared at her for a long moment. It was all perfectly clear to him. Geronimid could do with him what it liked now. What do I do while I wait for this node to activate? Explore, sleep, eat, all those things you would not be doing had your sentence been passed either five seconds later or earlier. Do you need to continually remind me? Yes, it would seem that I do. Without responding to that, Deus turned and walked to the window. He gazed out at a wall of jungle twenty meters away. The intervening area had been scorched to gray ash, but even there the ground was scattered with reddish-green sprouts and fungi like blue peas. A bewildering surge of feeling hit him. He wanted to be out there, to drive his fingers into the black earth, and to see and feel growing things. "'You say that Picotech isn't working yet?' he said. When Hera did not reply, he turned to her. No, I said that something wasn't working. Now I say that something is happening, she replied. Dea swallowed a sudden surge of fear. What the hell was he doing here? He should have gone to the disintegrator. At least that would have been clean and quick, and right now he would know nothing, feel nothing. What's happening? I do not know, said Hera. The node is reduced in size, and Pico machines are diffusing through your body. What they are doing will become evident in time. Deus pressed his hands against the thick glass of the window and noted that the skin on the backs of them was peeling. I want to go outside, he said. The air was frigid in his mouth. He had expected it to be warm and humid. This equates to the Jurassic period on Earth, said Hera. How do you work out that equation, then? Deus asked sarcastically. Quite simply, really. The ecosystems have not evolved to the complexity of mutualism between species. And that means? No flowers and no pollinators. The equations are more complex than that, obviously, but my explanation stands. You mean it'll do for a stupid human like me, said Deus. Why the hell is it so damned cold? This looked like jungle from in there. It is jungle, and for this place it is unseasonably hot. Couldn't you have chosen a warmer planet? I don't know. What the hell is that supposed to mean? You're a Geronimid. I am a part, and now a separate part. Deus turned to study her, then damned himself for a fool. If she gave away anything in her expression, that would be because she wanted to. It was so easy to forget what she was. Why? he asked. Because my direct link has been severed, it being possible to use such a link for direct informational attack on Geronimid itself. This planet is in quarantine for the duration of this trial, the only link we do have is a comm link to a second isolated submind of Geronimids in orbit. Is Geronimid that scared, then? Cautious, I think, would be a better term. Deus turned away from her and regarded the cold jungle. There was a path of sorts, probably beaten by one of the AI's machines. 
He headed for it, ash caking his boots, and little fungi bursting all around where he stepped. The vegetation on either side of the path sprouted from thick cycad bodies and bore a hard and sharp look. On the slimy, root-bound ground scuttled arthropods like skeletons' hands, which he watched hunting long black beetles that sobbed piteously when caught and eaten alive. He had gone only ten meters into the jungle when he suddenly felt sick and dizzy. He went down on his knees, and before he knew what he was doing, he was pushing his fingers into the black and sticky earth. Immediately his dizziness receded, and he suddenly found himself gazing about himself with vast clarity of vision. On the bowl of a scaled trunk nearby, he observed an insect bearing the shape of a legged stiletto with a head in which eye pits glinted like flecks of emerald. Then he found himself gazing up the bowl of the tree, vegetation looming above him. Then he was feeling his way along the ground with a familiar heat shape ahead of him. He leapt on it before it could escape and bit down and sucked with relish, filling himself but never assuaging the constant hunger. Then, then he was back. What the hell is happening to me, he said, blinking the clear, strange visions from his eyes as he stared into the jungle. You would be the best one to answer that question, said Hera. Tell me what you are feeling. Dea stumbled to his feet and turned back towards the residence Geronimid had provided. He saw now that it was one of those instant fold-out homes used by ECS for refugees and the like. It seemed sanctuary indeed for him. I want to go back, he said, walking quickly towards it. What happened? Hera asked, moving quickly to his side. Deus gestured to the creatures that swarmed on the jungle floor. I saw through their eyes, and when they didn't have eyes, I felt what they felt. He stepped through the door that opened for him and moved to a sink unit before one of the panoramic windows. Resting his hands on the composite, he saw that the skin on the back of them had ceased to peel, but when he lifted those hands up to inspect them more closely, he saw that his palms left, along with the black mud, white smears on the edge of the sink. He was about to say something about this to Hera when he saw that the smears were fading. Also, something bulked behind his eyes, and he felt himself almost stooping under its weight. Involuntarily, he turned and surveyed the room. Centering on the golem, he strode towards her and grasped her transparent wrist, and of course she easily pulled away. Now she held up her arm and observed the white smear on her wrist as it faded. Picotech leeching from your body. Outside it... Hera froze, and Deus found himself gazing out of her eyes at himself. He lifted her arms and opened and closed her hand, sensing as he did so the surge of optic information packages and diffusing electrons in her solid-state core. And he understood it all. Was obviously sending out probes to sample and test its environment. He was back in himself as Hera paused. She tilted her head. By my internal clock, I can only presume I went offline for fourteen seconds. She looked at Deus queryingly. But he had no reply, for now he was closely studying and understanding the workings of his own mind, taking apart all his memories and all his motivations, and sucking up every dreg of information it was possible to find. A flower he had seen as a child, named as an adolescent, and found dried and pressed in the pages of a book in the Theocratic College Library, was tracked in all its incarnations through his life as a straight line of information. And there were millions of these lines. He felt an analytical interest whenever he encountered anything in his mind that related to the Saurians, and anything related to the prehistory of Earth. 
At the last, he experienced the bleed-over of alien memory, and its huge logic and utterly cold understanding terrified him. Then suddenly it was all over, and he was standing in a room, on a planet, being watched by a golem android. I know what the node is, he said to Hera. Anton Velston never sneered. He left that to the others, just as, in the end, he left it to them to hold Deus across the table. That he used a gel on Deus's anus was not indicative of any concern for the boy. Velston just found it more pleasurable that way, and less likely for him to hurt himself. When the others took their turns, Velston stepped back and gave a running commentary, his voice devoid of emotion. And Pandal is at the gate, and he's in and getting up to speed. Oh dear, Pandal loses it in the first ten meters. What's this? What's this? Damar is leading with the head. So it went on, and when they were all done, Anton scrawled the sign of infinity on Deus's forehead with Deus's own semen-diluted shit. The others who watched, beyond this room and beyond this incarnation, dissected every increment of every moment and understood the event utterly. They saw that it was the culmination of Velston's power game. Of course Velston had to die at Deus's hand. The shame could not be admitted, the shame of being unable to fight. How could he expose those memories to AI inspection? Then there was vengeance, and that was oh so sweet. Hello, Anton, said Deus, strolling from his grav car out towards the man. Velston was tall, and with his mild, I am listening to you expression, and dressed as he was in his flowing robes, he was, it could not be avoided, priestly. He halted and regarded Deus estimatingly before moving his hands into a supplicating gesture, perhaps to apologize and explain about pressing business. You don't even recognize me, do you? Deus asked. Velston now put on the pose of deep thoughtfulness as he watched Deus come to stand before him. I feel we have met, said Anton, pressing his hands together as if in prayer. But I'm afraid I have a terrible memory for names, and in my ministry I meet so many people. What was it? Amand? Damar? I was one of the first to receive your ministry, Anton, said Deus. Velston now started to become really concerned. I'm so sorry, but as pleasant as this meeting is, I do have pressing business, said Velston, turning away. It's remiss of you not to remember someone you buggered, Anton. Velston froze and slowly turned back. The transformation in his expression surprised even Deus. Now Velston gazed at Deus with superiority as he folded his arms. He nodded his head as he no doubt wondered what to do with his inconvenient cockroach. Deus, he said, and sighed. Deus watched him for a moment, then he unzipped the bag he had stolen from the bowling alley and took out the machete. Velston's expression changed to one of contempt. Do you really think you would get away with using that? he asked. Oh, no, you wrong me. I don't expect to get away with this. I don't really care. Velston's expression changed once again, and his fear showed. He held out his hand as if to push Deus away. Deus swung the machete across, and the hand thumped to the plascrete a couple of meters away. Velston stared at his jetting wrist and made a strangled whining sound before capping his other hand over it. That probably doesn't even hurt yet, and it won't get a chance to, said Deus, relishing the expression of horror on Velston's face. He stepped in and pirouetted with the machete, and for one strange instant thought he had missed. 
That was until he once again faced Velston. The man was a statue for a moment, before blood jetted out sideways from his neck. Then he went over, his head separating from his body as it fell. No resistance at all. Deus inspected his hands for the nth time and saw that there was absolutely nothing wrong with them. Now, when he touched objects, he left no white smear. He reached out for his coffee cup, took it up, and sipped. Restful night, Hera inquired. Not really. I had some very strange dreams when I wasn't being woken by those weird noises. What the hell was that? said Deus. It doesn't have a name as yet. It's a large arthropod that deposits its egg sacs high in the trees. It is apparently a painful process, Hera replied. Apparently. Deus sipped some more coffee and wondered at the golem's seeming impatience. All emulation, but it did need to know. You said you knew what the node is, said Hera. Then, having grabbed my attention, you claimed great weariness and just had to go to bed. That is very true. Perhaps, now you are rested, you can tell me what you know. Deus shook his head. Sorry, can't do that. Why? Because I cannot. By stressing the personal pronoun, he hoped Hera would really get the picture. There were things he simply could not do, and things he could not say. That his mind had been reformatted, he had no doubt, but he was not too upset by this. There were things he could do. Looking out of the window, he surged up high and gazed down through a cluster of eyes at spiky treetops. Scanning round, he found another example of the creature he haunted, clinging to a flower spike like an upright bunch of giant blue grapes. This creature was a white spider with a dagger of a body and mouth parts that appeared complex enough to dismantle a computer and put it back together again. It clung with those mouth parts as its body heaved and strained and dripped transparent sacks on the foliage. The creature he was in could not hear the sounds the one in view nor itself made, but through other ears he could hear the hootings and raspings. Fleeing on with his awareness, he found it diffusing into an ice-crusted sea in which thin silver footballs fed on air-plant sprouts of weed. "'Will you ever be able to tell?' Hera asked. An island chain revealed to him multi-legged creatures like the skeletal spider things, but these possessed bat wings and the superb vision of aerial predators. But they were no good. Their simple light bodies would take millennia of adjustment to carry a greatly enlarged brain case. His awareness now snapped back to something on the other side of the continent he presently occupied. Here he observed a herd of grazing beasts, six-legged and reptilian. The brain case below the three eye stalks possessed complexity in control of the creature's complex digestive system, a chemical laboratory in itself. It would be necessary to push them into a predatory lifestyle, thus freeing up cerebral space, again a task taking millennia. However, near the house, he had observed a better option than this. And, of course, inside the house was the best option of all. He would continue to search, though, for the moment. The smallest fraction of his awareness studied the golem. I want you to contact the second Geronimid submind. I am in com- Deus wholly occupied all her systems in an instant. He found the open comm link to the submind in orbit and probed up to it, tried to widen that link. In seconds he had created computer subversion routines and used them to try and get a hold, to control. The comm link immediately shut down. Within him there was a calmness. This had been expected, and in the process he had learnt much. 
Next time, he would not be so brutal. He withdrew from Hera. Communication with the... I see. I hope you understand now that your quarantine is total. You have no way of leaving this planet without Geronimid's intercession. I understand, said Deus, and everything else that he was. I want information. You realize that if you do manage to take control of the submind above, it will be instantly obliterated. I require information, was all he said. What information? Everything you have on the Saurians and all related research. That is a lot of information. I have the capacity. Then link to me again, but do not drown me out this time, she said. Deus eased into her, carefully circumventing those areas from which her awareness evolved, her ego, self-image, what she was. Through the comm link, Hera spat the request into orbit, and the response was immediate. Deus realized that this had been expected, as there was no delay whilst the information was trawled from the AI net. As he scanned and sorted this information, calmly noting that all of the Saurian civilization discovered was but archaeological remains, he realized that, whilst he could just be Deus, in truth he was now some other entity. Deus was in fact now a submind of himself, and his whole self was centered on the node in which he felt a crammed multitude. However, through vast and spreading awareness, he observed Picotech chains of superconductor spearing across the surface of the planet, spreading their informational network through the ocean's depths, and flailing in the air like cobwebs as they connected with every life form, insinuated themselves into every niche of the biosphere. One third of the planet now lay under this net, this awareness, and within hours only, this network would meet on the other side, and he would be able to observe all and be ready. That was it, though. He felt a flush of fear that was his own and the crying of that multitude. Upon completion of the network, dispersion and implantation became a necessity, for thereafter the network would begin to degrade, as does all life, with the accumulation of copying errors, the degrading of the basic templates, only faster because of its complexity and the delicacy of its picoscopic strands. One time only. One chance. You don't know what wiped out my race, said Deus. Your race? inquired Hera. You, Submind, do not know what I am become. Geronimid certainly does. I want to communicate with the AI directly. You can only communicate with the Submind directly. Who will communicate with Geronimid when you have withdrawn? said Hera. But you know that. Deus felt the network gathering behind him like a looming shadow. Geronimid had chosen this location because of the spider creatures outside. He saw in an instant that their brain cases possessed sufficient room for primitive intelligence, and that their mouthparts were sufficiently complex for the fast development of tool-using ability. Nothing would be lost, as the bulk of each of the thousands of Saurian intelligences he contained could be stored as a picotech construct in each insectile mind. But those intelligences would be unable to immediately bloom. Transferred down the generations, whilst the creatures were subtly impelled towards development of more complex brains, it would be millennia before the Saurian race could be reborn. This option was unacceptable to the multitude, whilst such viable intelligences as Deus himself and these AIs were available. He must take Geronimid, subsume that AI. Yes, I do know that, he said. The planet-wide network had stalled, 
all his mentality now focused on this moment. He felt the link established to the orbital submind, and replayed Hera's words, "'Who will communicate with Geronimid when you have withdrawn?' This meant that the submind possessed some way of linking with the AI Geronimid in total. There had to be a way for himself to get through before the submind was destroyed. The comm link to the orbital submind opened, and Dea slid into it like syrup into a sore throat. The safety controls and trips he had observed on his first attempt, he easily circumvented as his awareness flooded up into orbit, subversion programs unquailing in the silicon logic of the submind like tight-wound snakes. In a nanosecond, he found the underspace linked to Geronimid in total, and prepared himself to storm that bastion. Then something flooded out of the link, vast and incomprehensible. His subversion programs began to consume themselves. He felt a huge, amused awareness bearing down on him with crushing force. Then that force eased. I offer you only two choices. Through allowable awareness, Dea saw the massive geosat poised above the planet. There was no possibility of mistaking its purpose. It was one long, internally polished barrel ringed by the toroid of a giant fusion reactor. In some areas, the weapon had acquired the name Sun Gun, which seemed an inadequate description for something that could raise square kilometers of its target to a million degrees Celsius in less time than it took to blink, a blink that would see all the stored intelligences gone. Destruction, Geronimid replied, is one choice. I have known for long enough that the Saurian node contains the zipped minds of some members of that race, ready to be implanted and unzipped in another race that has the capacity to take them. That second race will not be the human race. I could have destroyed the node, but that is not my wish. When you reattain your full capability, the human race will be on an equal, if not superior, footing to you. It will take thousands of years. Deus replied. You have slept for longer than that. Almost with a subliminal nod, Deus drew back down the informational corridor of the comlink, flooded through Hera, and back into his human body. For a moment he gazed at Hera, then he turned to the door of the house and stepped through and outside. She followed him as he walked into the jungle and stood observing the spider creatures in the trees. This, then, is completion of my sentence said Deus. Just him. More life than you would have enjoyed, she replied. He inspected his hand as the skin began to peel and the substance of his flesh began to sag. Quickly seating himself, he pushed those hands into soft, cold ground. Inside him, the intelligences separated and began transmitting into the network established in the area. In the transference, they took with them the substance of his body, widening channels through the ground to the nanoscopic, then microscopic, up the trunks of the trees, penetrating the hanging spider creatures through clinging complex feet. His own awareness breaking apart, Deus felt the subliminal agony he would have felt at his execution, as he similarly disintegrated. Saurian minds occupied primitive brain cases, and spider creatures crawled down from the trees with ill-formed ideas, hopes, and ambitions. Hera gazed up into the sky at the descending shuttle, then returned her attention to the creature crouching by the scaled bulb of a large cycad. It was gnawing away with the intricate cutlery of its mouthparts, behavior that had never before been observed. But then there was a lot of that now. 
Some had begun to build spherical nests around their egg clusters and to defend them from other predators whilst the eggs ripened and hatched. Still others plucked hard thorns from the leaf tips of cycads and used them to spear their prey. As the shuttle landed in the jungle behind her, she watched the creature back off from what it was doing and turn towards her, waving its forelimbs in the air. The noise of the shuttle engines then sent it scuttling into the undergrowth. She walked over to the cycad and inspected the creature's work. Neatly incised into the scales of the cycad was an eight turned on its side, the sign for infinity. She did not know if that was a suitable remnant to bequeath. Goodbye, Deus, she said, and turned away. And that was our story. You know, for years I've had a policy against killing spiders in my house. I just move them outside. I like spiders. Spiders do us good. This story makes me feel a bit better about that. Alright, we're weeks behind on feedback now, and we've got some catching up to do. I'm going to quickly hit responses to two very different stories this week. Escape Pod 134, Me and My Shadow, was Mike Resnick's dark study of a killer whose personality was erased, but not his nature. This was generally well-received. We had a few thumbs down, such as Morrow and Chaz, who used the exact same words, not my cup of tea, and Pete S. objected to the fact that I didn't put a violence warning at the front. Sorry about that, Pete. You're right, I should have. The forum thread opened up a fascinating discussion about the psychology and subtext of the story, with both fans and critics of the piece weighing in about what worked and what didn't. Itans had the most insightful commentary into what he felt were narrative missteps. The strongest criticism came from Anarchy, who felt that the real showstopper of the story was, quote, the tired and tiresome cliché of Hooker as convenient body count. This was turned over quite a bit, but without any real argument that it is a tiresome cliché with flat characterization. If all goes well, we may have a story that responds to that very soon. The following week was Escape Pod 135, Stu, Bruce McAllister's portrait of a Navy inventor whose work was never embraced. Most people love this story for its warmth and character, and, oddly enough, its lack of conflict. Bold Deceiver said, this is an example of a conversation-driven story done well. The gadgets helped, but they were basically icing. Mr. Tweedy found it morally and philosophically profound, while at the same time fun and funny. There were folks for whom it fell flat. Motti pointed out, quote, the complete and utter lack of anything going on. And 600 South said, I have to say I found the story kind of schmaltzy, and wondered if Tuesdays with Stu would have been a more appropriate title. Sorry for those it didn't work for. All I can say is that this is why we aim for variety. We also aim to release Escape Pod on a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license and to reserve all other rights for our authors. You can share us with your Pico technology across an entire planet, but don't try to make a buck off of us and don't alter our stored content. If you like what you've heard this week, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site. Yes, it's back on. This is how we continue to support our authors. Also check out our sister horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and you can buy collectible archive CDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can find their odes to phasing spider menaces at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Emerson Pugh, who said, If the human brain were so simple that we could understand it, 
we would be so simple that we couldn't. We'll see you next week. My resolution until then? Have fun.